What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I'm not going to lie. I just tried to find a quiet spot at Charles de Gaulle, the airport in Paris, France. Just played a show last night at La Cigale. Sick. Sold out show. I'm on my way to Dublin right now, finishing off my four-week Europe tour, which has been an absolute blast. Insane shows. It's so much fun. All sold out. Freaking sick crowds. Band is on fire. Killing right now. And it is not lost on me that it is an absolute gift, treat to do what I do and to be able to do it at this level. I'm super grateful for that. And I'm really grateful for everybody that comes out to the shows. So thank you to everybody who's been coming to the shows because you help me have a great time. And I hope to usher you in to a good time for yourself as well. Today on the podcast, we've got Mike Campbell. Mike Campbell is one of those names where I heard over and over and over again when I was doing a bunch of session work, especially in Nashville. That was a reference that was used all the time and still is used for guitar players doing session work and just kind of in music in general. There's a certain tone, there's a certain vibe, there's a certain style of parts that go along with Mike Campbell when somebody references it. And admittedly, at first, I didn't know exactly what people were talking about, what producers or artists were talking about, what they wanted it, what they wanted, you know, when they would say that. But I was very familiar with a lot of the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers stuff. For whatever reason, that song, You Don't Know How It Feels, I remember being a little kid watching it on MTV, that music video, and thinking, gosh, this feels amazing. That still stands out to me as one of the best feeling songs of all time. Mike Campbell, incredible guitar player, lots of wisdom, played on countless records. I'm not going to hold you up any farther. Here we go, Mike Campbell. Hey, you guys know about DistroKid yet? If you are an artist, musician, somebody who's trying to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, all of those things, DistroKid is a digital distributor that can get your music on all of those platforms. It's the easiest, fastest way to do so, with accounts even just starting at $19.99 a year per artist. So for me, I have several albums out. I just pay one amount for the year. For all the Corey Wong albums, I just pay one amount, and DistroKid takes 0% royalty. 100% of the royalties come straight to me. Or you use their Teams feature where you can dedicate a certain percentage to one member of your band, a certain percentage to the other, or one of your collaborators. I do this sort of thing. It works amazing. DistroKid is who I use for my albums, and it has worked great for me. The stuff gets up there fast. They have a smart ISRC thing. I don't have to worry about coming up with my own codes, registering a lot of the stuff. They just have that. And they also have these really cool design tools. If you are not very design savvy, they'll help you come up with assets for social media and other things to help promote your album. And if you want to use them, you can use my VIP code. Just go distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong and you get 30% off. How about that? Check them out. DistroKid. All right, let's hit this episode. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you on the podcast. I appreciate that. Thank you. I listened to the new record. I absolutely love it. Incredible guitar playing, incredible songwriting, tones, everything about it. I love it. Thank you, sir. <laughs> and actually, I, I want to start with 
with this album and just kind of ask a little bit about your process in recording guitar and producing guitar in general, just because I, I focus on the guitar a lot with this podcast, obviously being a premier guitar podcast. Yeah. When you approach getting into the studio, now I'm sure this is different with your music versus other people's music as well, or if it's something you're producing, do you typically have the parts in mind already, or do you just like to get in the room, listen to a demo or a a little version of the song, and then just go with your instincts? What's your go-to process for coming up with guitar parts? Yeah, 95% of the time, I like to just uh, pull it out of the air Yeah, without any preconceptions. Occasionally, on certain songs, if it requires a part to be worked out, uh, I will do it. But especially with this band, I like to just give uh, give them a sketch of what we're going to do and then play live and let things happen. What do those sketches typically look like for you? Well, it'd be a chord structure and some lyrics, uh, a verse and chorus, bridge, a map of some sort. Sure. And there might be a place, okay, this is where the chorus is. This part uh, is the solo. And then I like to play the solos live during the take. Yeah. And at the end, okay, this may go on 30 seconds. It might go on a minute. Just follow me and I'll signal you when we're going to stop. <laughs> yeah. And then just see what happens, you know, and uh, you got to be brave and fearless. But when you get it, it's, it's a kinetic uh, moment that I think communicates to the listener. Absolutely. And how do you recreate that live when you play... 30, 50, 100 shows in a row. Well, uh, the good thing about recording that way is you already know how to play it that way. So when we go, to, we were, we've been rehearsing the last three or four weeks. and It sounds incredible, but it sounds just like the record because that's the way we played the track. So we don't have to study it. We just play it again like we did before. Yeah. And uh, it's been pretty easy. You know, it's a great band. They, they're quick on their feet. And uh, there's not a lot of uh, struggle with that. Three to four weeks of rehearsal. That feels to me like a lot of rehearsal. That's a lot, but you know, and we've the Dirty Knobs have never rehearsed that much. Yeah. I've played in two years. Sure. We have two albums worth of material that we want to showcase. You know, in the past, we would do a, a, you know, a little club or a bar or a theater, and we might rehearse for two or three days and do a lot of covers and stuff. Mm -hmm. But this is a different thing because we have two albums out. We want to play a lot of the songs from the album. So we want to be really tight. Yeah. Two years, you get a little rusty. So it took us a couple of weeks to really just kind of get the juices flowing. But now we're starting to really sound good. When it comes to recording those things live, when it comes to that process that you're talking about, really just kind of showing the band, the song, the structure, and working it out in the room, it can be a difficult thing or a, a a high pressure moment to feel like I need to create iconic parts right now for this thing I just heard. And you seem to be a master of creating iconic parts that live on forever. How do you train yourself to be able to create iconic parts? And do you have some sort of mindset that others might not be thinking about when they're recording parts? Well, I can't speak to others and uh, thank you, but a lot of it's just luck. You know, and I think I just play the way I play and I'm influenced by what turned me on when I was learning to play. 
Mm -hmm. And I try to emulate that or, or I emulate it whether I try or not, like in the sixties, you know? Sure. I grew up in the Renaissance era for guitar and great bands and great songs. And that's the stuff I still listen to, you know, the kinks, the Beatles, the animals, the yardbirds, the zombies, the stones, and that stuff's in my DNA now. So when I play, um, hopefully some of those good elements might come through in the way I approach things, but I don't think like, Oh, I've got to write an iconic guitar part. You know, I never get that mindset at all. It's all just like get in the moment and just hope some magic happens, you know? And if you're really having fun and you're confident, you'll probably catch some magic. Yeah. Do you have an approach to splitting the difference of outlining harmony chord structure and being a counter to the melody? Uh, well, when I play guitar, I and, and with the Heartbreakers a lot, any, anything I do, I listen close to the melody of the vocal. Mm -hmm. And so I try to frame my stuff around that to bring out the best in it and not distract from it. And if there comes a place in the song for me to, to play a guitar without the vocal, I try to emulate what the vocal spirit was and maybe some mm. imply some of the melody that the vocal was was doing and then expanded a little bit so i key off the vocal a lot i mean that's a deep question a lot of times like in the studio if if, if i didn't play it live and there's going to be a, a a need for me to go and put a guitar part on a solo or whatever i'll sit back and listen to the song a lot you know and listen really close and hear the gaps where i think you know this should be a space or there should be a note in here and sometimes mm -hmm. I'll hum along in my head like, nah, 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 you know, and, and 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 then I'll think, well, that's a good little melody. I'll learn that on the guitar and that's part of the song. So it's a lot of it is just listening uh, really close. And um, I like economy. You know, the, the type of music I like does not require a lot of uh, showmanship and, and virtuosity, per se, or playing fast. I mean, I could do that, but it doesn't really satisfy me as much as working in something that really helps the song along. Yeah. So that's kind of how I, I just listen really close and sing along in my head uh, along with the vocal melody. And then sometimes try to find something like that on the guitar. Cause if the mode, if the vocal is singing in the chords, it's got something that works. Yeah. So if you emulate that, your part's probably going to work too, you know? Sure. You brought up something that was really interesting. That might be the answer to this question in general. You talked about the types of list, the music that you listen to now, even to this day, and growing up in the Renaissance era of the guitar. I hear a lot of people now playing and writing rock and roll music, writing guitar music, where they grew up listening to the things that came out in the last 15, 20, 30 years, I guess. Uh -huh. And a lot of modern rock and roll it just feels and sounds different. There's something different about it. You've seen rock and roll. You've seen the genres that utilize the guitar to its best abilities over the last several decades. Where do you feel like people really get it wrong? And where do you feel like people really get it right? You know, that's a really great question, Corey. I don't like a lot of the new uh, rock and roll uh, music uh, because I grew up back when it was a different with different feels a different shuffle different swing to the songs and uh, you know it's a long way from chuck berry to 
I don't know, Eddie Van Halen or who's great, but whoever your influences are. I mean, like you mentioned in the last, you know, 10 or 20 years, uh, these players, you know, were influenced by something completely different from me. And that's fine for them. Sure. I would, I emulate what I was influenced by. And in my humble opinion, I think it was a better time for music. Sure. It was just the songs were better. There were so many great bands, great guitar players. And it was just all this, you know, wonderful cultural music happening. And nowadays what I hear is a lot of uh, computerized or generic kind of sounding rock and roll. And it's not the notes, it's the feel. You know, there, mm. there's a, a swing to it that the older music has. And I, I don't know that a lot of these younger players understand that. They just want to play fast and learn the notes. And I don't know if you can do that if you didn't grow up with it. I don't. It's a good question. Uh, but I did grow up with it, and I I I want to carry that 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 feel on, you know, that spirit on. That's kind of what I try to do when I play now. Is like, you know, bring that element to the stage because I don't think many people can do it like I can do it because I was there. I'm so old. Sure, sure. Well, and it's I think also if somebody just paid attention to those things and really did listen to music with that feel, they would have some of those elements. But I think a lot of what I'm also hearing in your newest album is that it still sounds like those classic records, even though it's the modern era and it's, you know, it's, it's modern kind of mixing techniques, whatever. And I can tell it's, you know, mixed to sound like it should match the things of today. It still feels and sounds like a classic record. How do you pull that off? Oh, thank you. Um, well, uh, luck, <laughs> luck, <laughs> and just being where I come from. You know, when I when I write or play, I'm emulating something that really turned me on when I was starting out. That's still in sure. what I strive for. So maybe that's what's coming through. But let me just say, for these new bands, maybe they don't want to do that. Maybe they don't like that feel. Maybe that they, they yeah for what they're doing. That's fine too. You know, it's there's room for mm -hmm. everybody. I like that. Well, just like there's different influences and different ways that or different music that many of us have grown up with, depending on what generation we started playing music or got hooked on music. There's also different processes of recording music and consuming music. Now, of course, those are two very different things. We can separate that. So as far as recording music, the way that we record music, the way that the process has looked over the last 10, 30 50 years has been so different yeah what what things do you like about the modern recording process more and what things do you really miss about the way you recorded when you were first starting well um technology is just changing so quickly mm -hmm. and uh, i like some of the elements of the new technology and likes editing you yeah know, you have a track I mean, I rarely use analog tape anymore because, first of all, they don't make much of it, and second of all, the digital processors now are pretty good. You know, you can they yeah. all sound as good as the analog tape used to sound, almost. But so, just for 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 speed's sake and convenience, we record into a digital format. Mm -hmm. And if you want to do any internal editing, like put a chorus that wasn't there before, you can do it like that. Mm -hmm. In the old days, you'd have to copy it, cut the tape, and tape it together with actual tape and stick it on the reel and then re rewind it. So that can be helpful in the, in the writing process and the recording process to have quick 
uh, solutions to a, a problem you might want to solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, but the other side of that is if you get too, uh, and a lot of the music that people record now is that they're using their eyes a lot, you know, cause they're looking at the mm. screen, the sound waves and the editing window. And if you're, if you use your eyes too much, you forget to listen, you know, and in the old days you didn't see the music, you only heard the music. And so you yeah. had ears to go by. And so that kind of required you to imagine it in a different way. And I think nowadays people use their eyes too much and they, they look at the editing and if they just turn the turn, if they close their eyes, just listen for a change, they might, you know, make some better stuff here and there. Mm. Uh, and they might uh, not go down the rabbit hole of getting sounding too uh, processed or technical. Uh, and also in the tracking, you know, I don't like, I've, I've made records all different kinds of ways over the years, tracking live with drum machines, with drum loops, and Pro Tools and all that stuff. But what I really love the most is playing live. And so yeah. now I brought my band in, and the Heartbreakers last few albums too, is we just uh, treat the, the digital recording uh, world as a tape machine. Think of it as a tape machine, yeah. not this big di- digital monster. Mm-hmm. And all it's doing there is recording what you're playing. You're not going to change it later or tune it or, you know, replace it with this sound or that sound or overdub a bunch of shit on it. You're going to have to play for three minutes from start to finish as if it was a tape recorder. That's the way I envision it. Okay. Play that back. You know, sometimes I miss the the rewind sound because <laughs> that was kind of a part of the process. You'd hear that and you'd be listening and waiting to hear what you just did. Now you just go, go and you're right back in it. You don't get a break from it, you know? Mm. So I prefer, and on this new, uh, the dirty knobs record, to use it only as a tape recorder and to play live. Now, occasionally yeah. it do some vocals again or fix a guitar note here and there, but not much, not much at all. A lot of the solos are just live on the floor, unrehearsed. And some of the vocals are live. I did have to fix some of the vocals because they were out of tune or whatever, or I didn't even know the lyrics well enough because the songs had just been written. Yeah. But uh, that's the way I approach it, like a tape machine. And try to not get sucked into the, the digital world because there's a rabbit hole you go as deep as you want to go with your eyes you know and then you're not hearing the music anymore absolutely i've actually noticed that i've i've noticed that with certain things it's like you see kind of a dirty wall outside and you clean one part of the wall and all of a sudden that sticks out it's like oh now i gotta clean the rest of the wall yeah yeah <laughs> it's kind of like that it's kind of either you're either all digital or all analog but i have a, a analog mentality even though we're using the um like I said, the digital stuff, but I think of it in analog terms. That's what I grew up on. Yeah. But it's just, I try to make it sound that way too, to my ears, you know, not with my eyes. Sure. My ears. I set my amps and stuff up and set the drum sounds up to where it sounds to me like it used to sound back in the old days. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact that you're using real instruments, real people, that obviously plays a lot into it. And people that are making decisions that have similar references as you do. As far as the guitar tone, have you ever dove into the digital modeling realm or have you only ever used real amps? I have had a few uh, boxes or amps that had digital mod- modeling. And I mm-hmm. found that that stuff is interesting because you go, okay, dial up. Oh, this sounds like a Rickenbacker from the 60s. And you go, oh, okay, yeah, it does kind of until you plug a real one in. And it's like, oh, no, it doesn't. There's something. Sure. <laughs> kind of fools you. And, it's like a, 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 you know, 
a simulation of what's real. Um, so I don't really like the modeling much. I mean, it, it's fun. But if you really, if you want something to sound like something, you should use that, not a model of it. <laughs> I use the real stuff, real amps, real guitar. Yeah. Uh, you know, occasionally I'll use a pedal if we're tracking live. I have a pedal for gain for a solo or I want some delay. I try to do it on the floor like I would if it was at a gig. Yeah. But not much. It's mostly just the guitar and the amp and the hands, you know. Yeah. Now, we talked a little bit about recording the music. I want to get your take on how we consume music these days because oh. the way that we've consumed the way that we consume music now, everything's at our fingertips, everything is cheap. There's I guess a plus and a uh, a positive and a negative to that. Like we could pretty much pull up anything in the history of recorded music at any time. Yeah. For basically free, or for me, you know, $10, $15 a month, whatever it is that I pay for my premium subscription, and then I have some of my records at home. When I was growing up as a little kid, I would buy CDs and that sort of thing. Still a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, and there's before that, there was cassettes, eight tracks, vinyl records. There's been so many different eras of how people have listened to or consumed music, the way that the radio had so much influence, the way that a TV spot had so much influence, the way that we consume music in society now is very different. I'm curious also on that front, how you, what things really excite you about what's happening now, but then also what things is, I mean, obviously there's something that's lost along the way or there's some sort of process. How how do you think about the way music is consumed now versus whatever decade you want to reference? Yeah, it's uh, well, there's no stopping it. You know, I, I think it's unfortunate in a lot of ways for the consumers that you know they get a stream, and the stream is once again a bit of a facsimile of what the music really sounds like. Sure. But, you know, just like longing for the old days, it, you know, there's it's 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 complete. There's no stopping it. I, I, I'm sad about the fact that the, that the uh, Spotify's people can can get your music out, you know, and, and pay you nothing, you know. Yeah. And that's kind of sucks. But I like the fact that there's a little bit of a revival in uh, in vinyl. Yeah. And uh, I do, I have con to confess though, like if I'm, if I've got my phone and I want to hear a song by uh, Wilson Pickett, I don't have to go to a record store or go dig through my records. I can just go boing, boing, boing. There's the song. I wanted to hear how yeah. that song went. It's not a visceral experience, but I can find the material really fast or the lyrics. Mm. Just, da, da, da. What was that lyric? Don't, there it is. You know, in the old days, you couldn't do that. I do like that convenience, especially if I'm writing and I want to refer to a song at my fingertips, yeah. I can just find it really fast. But if I want to really have a visceral musical experience, I put on a record. Yeah. And I listen to records on, I, I in my kitchen, I have an old Zenith fold out, the speakers fold out and the turntable folds down and it's got loudness, treble and bass. And yeah. I listen to my records on that and it's, I get a visceral experience with it you know it's something physical about the realness of it that uh, when you listen to digital music it's a different experience you know it's it's almost all cerebral but not you don't feel it the same way necessarily hmm. but then i you know i'm old school 
No, but there's something there's something in the ritual of really intentionally sitting down. This is the album I'm going to listen to. I can't just click on to some other random thing. Like I have to pick up this record yeah. from my collection, put it on the turntable. I have to get and turn up, it on. turn it over when I want to hear side two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, th- I think there's that's beyond just the way that you grew up doing it. I think there is an actual physical connection as a human with just the fact that there is a ritual involved. The ritual is important, I think, too, to, to my experience. And scientists have studied the sound waves and supposedly analog music physically washes over your your biorhythms and your body a different way than digital music does. Because mm. digital music has got little gaps in it, minute little digital gaps, you know, it's ones and mm-hmm. zeros or whatever, however they explain it. And analog music does it. And I think it it affects your bones in a different way. It affects your heart in a different way. Um, and I think that's been proven by scientists. But I, I don't know. The new generation, I don't know if they care about that stuff. They just want to hear the song real quick. And they don't tune into it as deeply as we used to. The ritual maybe is lost on them. And that's sad. Sure. But, you know, it is what it is. You can't stop it. Yeah. I always, always kind of hope someday that there'll be like a glitch in the universe and all digital music will just go poof, gone. Okay, go get a record. You know, go over to your, if you don't have it, go to your friend's house. He has the XLMA Street. You can listen to it over there. Go to the record store and find it and put it on. Invest some time because you want to really have an experience with this. But, you know, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, fortunately, nothing can recreate the real live music experience. Being uh, yeah. physically in a room with hundreds or thousands of other people watching and experiencing that moment that is only existing in that moment. Yeah. That's a ritual like going to church, you know, that they can't take that away from us. Uh, thank God. Mm-hmm. Cause you got to just be there to feel that. And, th- and magic happens in the, you know, that you don't get off of a record or anywhere else. Yeah. When you're going on tour playing live, do you think through, do you plan out your solos or do you just play them? Whatever you're feeling that night. Well, both. That the songs that we're doing from our records, which is most of our set, I like the solos that were that were. Sometimes I have to go back and relearn them because they were off the top of my head. But I like them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to mess with them too much. I take a few liberties, um, and there's certain songs where there's total liberty where we get to this part, and anything just follow me. I don't know where I'm going to go, but we'll go yeah. there, and it'll be worth the, the trip. Uh, but if it's a song that has a guitar solo or a guitar part on the record that I think was essential, I try to recreate those, you know? Yeah. So it's both. Cool. As far as the way you approach playing and recording when you're a producer or a co-producer versus a session musician, are you paying attention to different things or is that producer side of you just kind of always there and that's part of the package people get when you're on an album. Yeah, it's kind of always there. Producing is something I just kind of backed into. I didn't set out to be a producer, but when we were making the Heartbreakers records, it, it ended up just me and Tom usually looking at each other, making decisions together. And, and he said, well, you know, you should get co-production credit because you were, you know, contributing to this process. Yeah. So I, I, am called the producer, but I mean, it's, I'm, I approach, I don't do a lot of sessions. Mostly I work on my own stuff and when I'm yeah. my own stuff, I'm producing it as I write and record it. It's all one thing, you know? Sure. It all goes together. There's one track I remember 
from being a little kid, one of the first things that got me really interested in the music part of songs was You Don't Know How It Feels. I remember watching that music video on MTV, and I remember at some point that music video was on a lot, and I absolutely loved it. But maybe the third time around, I just closed my eyes and listened to it, and I remember thinking, I don't know why, but there's something about this music that I like so much. I love the feel of the drums. I love the sound of the acoustic guitar and the riff of the electric guitar and how it just has this thing that feels so raw, that feels so organic, but it's just so perfect. And it's so perfectly imperfect as well. Oh, thank you. Well, there's a lot of space in that arrangement, which might be what you're picking up on. It's interesting, that song, we were working with Rick Rubin. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were talking about like, we should we should have a hit. We should make a song that, that sounds like <laughs> and we've never made a single or a hit. We don't if it happens, it's usually just a, an accident. So he said, Well, you know, I we said, Well, what what do you what what sounds like a hit? And he said, Well, you know that Steve Miller song, I'm a joker, I'm a smoker. We should do yeah. that beat. So that was the germ for that feel, that drum feel. Boom, boom. Mm. And then Tom took that idea and went home and came up with a, a really simple song. There's a lot of simplicity in, in our songs. And if you have space in the right places, it can sound bigger than it really is. You know, mm. that song is an exercise. And you know, as it turned out, it, it was a, a kind of a hit single. Uh, but um, that's the only time we ever talked about. Let's try to make a hit. <laughs> well, the only time we talked about that was on Full Moon Fever which we did with Jeff Lynn, Tom and I, and we did the whole album, just the three of us pretty much. And we loved it. And we took it to the record company and they go, we, we don't hear any hits on this record. You should, you should go write a hit. And we were just heartbroken. We came back to, to the studio, like, you know, free falling. I won't back down, running down a dream. Uh, they don't, they don't, those aren't hits. If those aren't hits, I don't know. That we can do it. Let's just do it. Let's do a bird song. That was a hit. <laughs> feel a whole lot better because if it was a hit, you know, they wanted a hit. Here's your hit, you know. <laughs> of course, then six months later, we took the same record back into the record company, a whole new A&R department. This song is six hits deep. I mean, this album is six hits. So, you know, a lot of that wow. luck and timing and Lord knows what. I can't believe somebody would listen to that record and say, there's not a single hit on it. I mean, even just the ones you mentioned right there alone. No, we were we were heartbroken. We were like, we thought, well, we must be really up our ass. We thought this was really good stuff. Maybe we're wrong. You know, maybe maybe they just no one's gonna like this, you know. <laughs> it's really had us self-doubt ourselves. And that's how we did the bird song for the hit. But it was really just a different time, timing, different uh set of people at the record company that hear it differently. And uh there you go. You just never know, you know. We've never tried to make a hit, really, except for that one thing. And even that, we're thinking, sure. you know, we can't make a hit just because we want to. It's usually back into them, you know. Yeah. Well, you also just mentioned two producers that are very notoriously different in their approach and just their background with Rick Rubin and Jeff Lynn. I'm curious for you as somebody who, you know, you're saying you were kind of backed into producing, but you clearly have a producer's mindset and you know what you're doing both on the musical side and just the 
yeah, this feels right, or this needs something. What is the production style in your, just from from your experiences of working with Rick Rubin or Jeff Lynn, how did those producers really shine and what did they draw out of you guys while you were making records? And what what did you really like about working with both of those producers? Well, you make a good point. They're a completely different approach to making records. And I love both approaches. And Jeff Lynn is a fucking genius. And he's so fast. And it was mostly with that record, it was just me and Jeff and Tom. <clears throat> and it was all mm-hmm. done on analog at the time. We didn't have digital. We had a 24-track machine and a two-track machine. And Jeff's, you know, led us through his approach, which is uh, start with the acoustics and build the record up, you know, one at a time. We didn't mm. play together on that record. But he's so good at doing that that at the end of the day, it sounded like everybody played together, you know? Yeah. And one way to make a record, you know, and, and you, we made some great records that way and I wouldn't do them any differently because they just worked with that type of production. After a couple of records of that, we thought it would be good maybe to get back to the band playing together uh, and make some more records that way. And then Rick is really good at that. Rick came in and uh, we went back to re- tracking the songs live and not doing one piece at a time. Mm-hmm. And both, you know, and both, processes work i like both of them you know and it really depends on certain songs uh lend themselves to a different approach you know depending on what you want to accomplish yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense but jeff was so brilliant i learned so much from jeff and uh just his his production technique and the way he layers things and the parts the way he puts parts together and the sounds that he gets on his vocals and the drums uh, it was just brilliant. Every day it was like, oh my God, you know, it's like I'm going to college here. And this is the professor's showing me another trick that I would have never dreamed of. You know, he's so talented. What studio did you guys do that album at? At my house. Oh, you did it at your house? It was before I had a proper studio. It was a bedroom. I had an Otari machine and a little Soundcraft. Uh, and we went in just to make some demos, you know, and demo some songs. And and I never took the, stereo, the, the uh, studio that serious. It was a demo room. And Jeff, yeah. he goes, okay, this will work. Okay, Mr. Lynn, whatever you say. And sure enough, by the end of the day, it sounded like a fucking record, you know, and he's, he just like made it happen. And he knew how to, what, you know, how to put it all together with the, the gear we had. And uh, that was just a little room, you know, like a, a bedroom, a small bedroom with uh, some gear in it. And I had my garage for the drums and we ran some cables out. But um, yeah, it was all done like that on analog you know yeah that's amazing i didn't realize that you did it at your house yeah and jeff you know he he would do stuff like you know he he's really good at background vocals and these big background vocal choruses and uh we were using a a drum machine as a timekeeper but then we Mm -hmm. would go out and he had a way of having one drum at a time which makes each drum sound really cool that's one of his trademarks but the other thing he did I don't want to give away his secrets, but this is pretty well known. He, we had 24 tracks and uh, we needed, you know, we had a chorus that had, you know, I don't know, maybe six or eight harmony vocals and doubles and this. And so we would take those vocals, just the vocals, the mob of singers and put it in the stereo two track machine and then take that and balance it and, and hit record on the multi-track and play 
on the other track and try until it got in sync. And then we could drop all the choruses in. So each time the chorus came around, it was all those voices came and we didn't have to sing them all again. And it sounded so good, you know, and just tricks like that, that he just had learned over the years that just, um, I really enjoyed working with him. And he's also a great guy, really, really wonderful person. Well, that would be an example of one of those things in modern technology that would be very easy to do. You wouldn't have to really time it. You could just copy it over. No, it was funny. He, you know, he'd be down on his knees with his hand over the tape machine. Okay, ready? Play it uh, right there. Oh, I missed it. Do it again. You know, it was like, <laughs> you know, it was like when you get it right, it's like, woo. Nowadays, you just go, you know, touch, touch, touch. There it is. It doesn't fit, yeah. but it gets the job done. Yeah, yeah. Another aspect of your guitar playing and just career has been sometimes playing in other bands where you weren't the player on the session or in the band at the time, like joining Fleetwood Mac. When you're coming into another situation where you weren't the original cat on the album or in the room creating the songs, what is your approach to learning and performing those things live. How much do you take from the original recording and how much of yourself do you insert into it? Well, that's a really good question. That's, that was a challenge for me because I'm not used to doing that. Yeah. And they asked me uh, and I thought it over for about 24 hours and said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this with you guys. And then I had, you know, I, I approached it like, you know, I approach it like sometimes with the heartbreakers, we would bring in a, a Chuck Berry song or mm. some old uh, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders song. We try to learn it and we try to emulate the best bits from the record and then do it our way. Yeah. Approach the Fleetwood Mac thing with a lot of uh, reverence for those records. You know, they have mm -hmm. amazing, I love Lindsey Buckingham and it was a little awkward for me, but I took it on as a challenge to honor him the best I could. And I studied quite hard on those records to learn the bits the best I could that had to be in there. Yeah. But without those guitar parts, the songs aren't even the same songs. And yeah. the, I learned a lot and I uh, enjoyed the challenge. I didn't in inject much of my own stuff into it because those records are so well known. I, there's no space for me to, to go heartbreakers on them, you know? Yeah. But uh, there was a few songs like, Oh, well, and a couple of other things where I was able to, to play a little a bit of my own spirit. But mostly on that gig, which was a long, like a year and a half, we went around the world. It was so much fun. And what a great rhythm section. It was so much fun. But my job, uh, I saw, was to recreate these records best I could, you know. And then we had Neil Finn, who was up there singing those songs, too, which is, a, I'm sure, a challenge for him. But we did the best we could. I think it sounded good. You know, we, it was a successful tour. And people seemed to like it. Yeah. One of the guys that I grew up playing within the Twin Cities music scene, Ricky Peterson. Oh, yeah. Ricky. He was on that. <laughs> what a great yeah, Ricky was a little bit of a mentor. His family all kind of brought me up in the scene. Oh, he's a good cat. Yeah, like we got, we got to be good friends through that tour. Really friendly guy and very talented. They helped me a lot, you know, <laughs> supporting me when I was trying to learn. I don't know. He almost got it, yeah. <laughs> it goes like this. Okay. Yeah. Well, just all this thing, all these things that we're talking about, thinking through the decades of hit songs for you as a guitar player, a writer, a producer, a band member, doing things like this where you're hired by other bands. There are so many 
things that could feel or look from the outside like absolute pinnacle moments and things that are definite objective beacons of success. And every person who's had any level of success has to kind of redefine what success means for them at whatever stage they're at in their life. I'm curious for you where you're at right now in your life, what does success mean to you and what is it that you're looking for? What, where are you aiming on the dartboard that would make you feel success at this point? Wow. Okay. That's deep. Um, success. Well, I've been very fortunate. I mean, I started out really poor and I had as through the heartbreakers years, I had a lot of success, um, musical and financial success. Fortunately, I'm, I'm not uh, strapped for cash. Uh, so success now to me is just writing a good song and uh, taking my band out. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I look at my, where I'm at now is success to me is, first of all, I want to have fun. You know, I want to enjoy playing music, which is my love. And I, I don't mm-hmm. want to struggle with it. I don't want to do music I don't like. And now that I have my band, I want to do my music because I enjoy. That's where I really enjoy doing the most. I'm not really a session cat. I never was per se. Sure. But um, I look at this tour like this tour. It's been two years since I played live in front of people, and we had this whole tour book back before the pandemic, and it got pushed back, pushed back. So it's been two years since I played in front of an audience. But uh, I look at it like. My job and my goal uh, for success with my music right now, especially with the tour, is, is, you know, the world is rough. You know, it's rough out there for everybody. It's just like so fucked up in so many ways. It's so depressing and isolationist. So I look at it like I get an opportunity to go somewhere, have some people come in, whether it's 400 people or 40,000 people. I don't care. And, okay, forget the world, okay? My job is here to take your minds off of that and let's have an experience, almost like church. You know, we're going to preach the gospel of rock and roll for you here for two hours. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to share it with you. You're going to hopefully give us back some energy. We're all going to have a release from, you know, the darkness that's out there. We're going to have a moment Mm -hmm. where we can really be happy and joyful. And that's kind of, to me, that's success whether you're writing a song that inspires you or you're playing with your friends in the rehearsal room or you're playing at a gig, I just want to be in touch with that source, you know, that source of creativity. And that, that's where the fun is. And I want to have fun. And I do. <laughs> yeah. Simple as that. I'm, I'm not trying to get rich. I don't need to make the money. I mean, I'd like to, you know, pay everybody and I will, but that's not the motivation. It never was really. It's always just to play music and have fun. And if you're doing that, it usually communicates to people. I love that. That is a wonderful answer. Oh, thank you. Deep question, but I, <laughs> I like the deep questions. You know, this has actually been a great interview. I, I like your question. Well, great. Thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for going deep in it. It's just, I'm, I'm very curious about those things for people that have been doing this for a while and have just had so many different experiences. So. It is so precious and so mysterious that, uh, you know, I don't want anything to fuck with it. You know, mm. if you're if you're fucking with my muse or my groove, get out of my face. You know, I'm going <laughs> to here and don't mess with it. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I want to close out with a gear question because as being a guitar podcast, people want to know about gear. You know, we as guitar players, a lot of people like to buy new gear, right? So I'm curious on your, just in your opinion, three different, three different levels of this question. The first one is, is there a piece of gear around $20 or less-ish that every guitar player needs? Well, $20 or less, you know, what I would get is uh, a little, you can do it on your phone now, or a little digital recorder. You know, mm. push a button and and play into it and then listen to it back. And yes. that you can write to it. You can practice licks or whatever. You can do it on your phone now. They have little recorders in your, which I use a lot for writing. And mm-hmm. that's a valuable tool because you can realize an idea. You can hear it back. And you can edit it as you, as you hear it, and mm-hmm. um, it's a great tool. It'll it'll you'll improve so much if, if you just record what you're doing and listen to it back right away, and then do it again and correct what wasn't right. And uh, for less than twenty bucks, that's probably the best uh, you could spend. I don't think you can get a guitar for less than twenty bucks. <laughs> that this has been my favorite answer for that yet because you're absolutely right. Listening back to yourself and self correcting. In the moment, that's huge. Yeah, or if you're writing a song and you, you you know you play it down with the acoustic guitar into your little thing, and you play it back, and you can sing a harmony with it, mm. or you can uh, pick up the guitar and go, well, "Here's a guitar part that'll tie this together," and it's it's uh, it's invaluable to me, really. And it, that's one thing I like about the, the. I used to be on a cassette player. We have our little cassette players, and we do it. But now with the digital stuff, it's good for that. You can get yeah. You're in your car and you're driving. You get an idea, you just pick it up, blah, 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 and put it, look, look at it later, you know? Yeah. All right, how about any piece of gear, $200-ish or less? What does every guitar player need? Well, uh, $200. You can get a guitar. You can get a, you know, Fender makes a lot of guitars that are nice. Fender Squires for less, around $200. Or you can get just a little, a little uh, amp, like a Champ or something. Like mm-hmm. an amp is or, or acoustic, maybe you know it's good to have a guitar in your mix. <laughs> For two hundred dollars or less, what if I had two hundred dollars and that's all I had? I'd probably get a because I like electric guitar. I would get a, a Squire and maybe just some little little amp, you know. Yeah, and start with that or one acoustic guitar and just focus on that, you know. Yeah. All right. What if price is not an issue? We're talking somebody who's got endless resources. They're already a guitar player. They've got some stuff in their collection already. What is one piece of gear for the person who doesn't have any issues with finances? <laughs> what piece of gear do they need? Well, a piece of gear, I would get a good recording setup. You know, mm. I would, if it was up to me and I had no uh, money issues, I which. I have got now, but I would get it like an old Studer console mm. so that you could record your music, you know, and, and, and state of the art form would be nice, you know? Yeah. Um, that I, I have a joy with that. Cause if I do a little sketch on my phone, like I said, or whatever, and then I like it, I could go into the next room and make it sound like a master recording, you know, cause I've got yeah. ear in there. That, that's nice to have, you know, a few microphones, totally. not one piece of gear would, maybe there's one piece of gear would do that. I don't know. They probably have digital, recorders now that have nice microphones built into them 
And with that, you can play, you know, you can have your a whole band of different instruments and you can overdub, you can sing, and you can do all kinds of shit with it. I love that. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. It really is a treat to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Very thought-provoking. I appreciate it. Okay, bye. There you have it, Mike Campbell. What a great guy. What a great guy. That was really fun for me to talk to him, get to know a little bit of how he thinks about music, how he thinks about life, how he goes about doing this thing for so many decades. What a treat to have him on. Mike, thanks for being with us again. And to everybody listening, thank you for hanging out. Thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. We're having fun. We're having fun out here. All right? I'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for hanging. Peace. Peace.